Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and uh, we're going to continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians. Um, if you're new to our church and want to catch up on the studies, they're on our website. We have a little place there called the Sermon Archive. You can go back and listen to the rest, uh, chapters 1 through 3. Last week, Sue and I traveled to Salem, Oregon for the wedding of Sue's, Sue's cousin's daughter. Uh, there'll be a test on that later. Um, it was a rare treat for me just to sit in a, in a wedding a ceremony and just watch and enjoy. And it was a wonderful, godly couple, and they had a great pastor. It was really, really a privilege to be part of that. Um, at the rehearsal dinner, there was a slideshow in which there was one of the pictures, had a picture of the bride, her name was Leah, with her friends that she graduated from Corbin University with. And I noticed that the two friends on each side of her both had the honor cords, you know, when you graduate cum laude or summa cum laude or whatever it is. And they both had the honor cords, and these girls had the honor cords, and Leah didn't have any honor cords. And I said to her, I said, uh, Leah, I noticed... Uh, your friends all had the honor cords, but you didn't. She goes, that's right, but I still graduated. <laughs> I can relate to that. Uh, there is a graduation day coming, a day of recognition for Christians, and the Apostle Paul keeps referring to it, and he's going to refer to it again today in the passage we're going to study and the importance to us of that graduation day is this. We've got to have a right understanding of that day if we're going to live a God-honoring life. Please follow as I read from 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from the Lord. In the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is working hard to correct a major problem in the church at Corinth. And I would just summarize that problem in these two words, spiritual pride. Now you can have pride in a lot of things, you know, like we have the two cutest grandkids that sit in the front row or whatever. But we're talking about spiritual pride, as in these folks were coming to church and sort of dividing up into groups and saying, we follow this guy and we follow that guy and our group is better than your group. And there was all of this antagonistic divisiveness in the church. And the Apostle Paul is writing to them to say, this needs to stop, it needs to, needs to change. And in the first three chapters, Paul has addressed this issue from a number of principles, a number of perspectives, and today he's going to address it from this perspective right here, saying pride is removed by the pursuit of God's approval. When we really get ourselves focused on gaining God's approval, that's when pride goes out the window and godly humility comes in. 
And so as we begin in this passage, the first thing we're going to understand is this. God's approval requires a right understanding of the self, of yourself. Look at verse 1. Let a man so consider us. Here's how Paul thought about himself. Let a man, let, and, and he said, I want you to think about me the same way I think about myself. Let a man so consider us as two things, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so the question we would ask is this, as a servant, are you obligated to obey God's instruction? As you consider your life, who you are, what you're doing, do you get up in the morning saying, I have an obligation to obey God's truth. The word that Paul uses for the servant is a fascinating word. It's only used a few times in the New Testament, and it would be literally interpreted under rower. An under rower. What's that talking about? Well, this, this kind of a ship was called a Roman galley, and the galleys were powered primarily by the oars, as you can see. They might have a sail as well to aid, but they had rowers. And some of these ships had more than one level of rowers. They would have an upper level and a lower level. And you may have seen this depicted uh, in a movie uh, or, you know, where here's these guys down in the hold and they've got a hold of the oar and the captain comes on and says, I have good news and bad news. And the good news is there's an extra ration of grog for everybody and the bad news is I want to water ski. <laughs> no, that's not what he would say. But they would come and say, row faster, row slower, whatever, according to what they're doing. And you notice that these guys are slaves, and often they would be chained in place. And so when Paul used the word under rower, he's saying, I am a slave or a servant of the lowest order. That's how he thought of himself. Now, don't, don't go all psychological on me here and think Paul had a bad self-image. No, just the opposite. Paul had a great self-image. He didn't go around going, oh, I'm nothing, I'm just an underrower. No, he looked at himself in relationship to Christ, in relationship to God, and he said, compared to God, I am an under rower. I am, he is the captain of this ship, and I am the guy on the oar. When he says we're going faster, we're going faster. When he says we eat, we eat, and etc. He saw himself as an under rower. One commentator put it this way. That's how Paul viewed himself, not as the super apostle nor as the author, second only to Luke for the sheer volume of God's word that he wrote. Not as the founder of many churches that span several cities, not as the first foreign missionary, not as the leader of Christ's cause, but as a slave, as the lowliest of the slaves. One of our problems, frankly, in American Christianity in relating to God is we hate the term slave. Now, there's a proper way to hate that, a proper environment to hate that in. But we don't like the idea that anybody would have ownership over us. We have believed that the preamble to the Constitution or to the Declaration of Independence was given by God, and it was not. 
when it says you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's not from the Bible. God says you have the responsibility to follow me as an under rower follows the orders of a captain because I have saved your life. The summary of this truth is here in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you're not your own? For you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. This verse implies that God has purchased us and he owns us. And it's amplified by what Peter said here in 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed. You were not purchased, bought with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ that we remembered in the Lord's Supper today. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. God uses the imagery of slavery to help us understand two things. Number one, in our natural condition, we were the slaves of sin. What happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God? Class, what happened? Their eyes were open, and, and what did Adam do as soon as God confronted him? That woman. So let me just summarize. Did their lives get better or worse? Did they act more godly or less godly? As soon as they sinned, they were stuck in sin. And we've been stuck in it ever since. What did their first son do to their second son? He murdered him. And so on and so on, right down to 2014. But when Christ died, he paid for our sin and made it possible for God to take the blood of Christ and apply it to us to pay for our sin and to remove us out of the slavery of sin and bring us into his family. But the way we come into his family is by a price being paid. You owe God. Now you can't do anything to earn that salvation, but once you have received it, and that's the environment in which Paul is writing now, to those who have received that purchase price paid on their account, there is a debt of gratitude to be paid through service to Christ. It goes like this in Romans 6. If we have been in other words, if you believed in Christ, when that happened, if you have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we will be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old sinful man was crucified, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. God paid for our sin and, and, and figuratively, God took us and put us together with Christ so that when he died on the cross, our sinful nature was crucified. When he was buried and then rose again to a new life, we rose again to a new life. And that is the impact of God's paying for our sin with the blood of Christ. But that does not free us 
to do as we please with our life and then show up in heaven someday. I'm ready for eternity now. The Apostle Paul said, I'm the slave of God. I used to be the slave of sin, but now I'm the slave of God. And he said, this is so great. The important thing about that that vision of self is it's going to have a big impact on how you live your life. You're going to get up in the morning and say, what am I going to do today? You're going to walk through your life and come to that why in the road when when one path is sin and one path is righteousness and you think, what should I do? Oh, I am the slave of God. I don't get to choose. These are not two options like, well, maybe A, maybe B. This is like, no, I have no right to choose sin. I must choose righteousness. When it comes to serving the Lord, do you have the right to choose? Well, I'm gonna, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve the Lord today, but I'm not gonna serve the Lord tomorrow. No, you have no right to choose. Did the under rower, <laughs> can you imagine the under rowers forming a union? <laughs> Excuse me, sir, I'd like to speak with the captain. Uh, we'd like better conditions, please. Frankly, we want a couple of days off. You see, but that's what we do with God. God says, listen, I want you to serve me. And you say, God, you know, I've served you for a few years. I want to take some years off. I served you on Sunday. I want Monday to myself. The Apostle Paul said, I am his under rower. He saw himself as a slave. Now, he also saw himself, look at verse four, chapter four, verse one again. He also saw himself as a different kind of slave. And, he, and that's the word steward of the mysteries of God. He saw himself as a lowly slave, but he also saw himself as a manager of God's belongings. The word steward is a word, if you've studied the Bible at all, the New Testament, you're familiar with that. It's a, it's a person who was put in charge of another man's belongings. Most often they still were slaves or in the slave category, but they were, they were if the under rower was the bottom of the slave echelon, the, the, the house manager was the top. He was right up there. And, and so as a house ruler, he would have been in charge. We have a great example of this in Genesis 39. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. That's Potiphar, the, the man who owned him as a slave. He served him, found favor in his sight. Then Potiphar, Potiphar made him overseer of his house. You can put the word steward in there if you like. And all that he had, he put under his authority. Now this isn't a house like, like uh, 57, or excuse me, 6083 <laughs> Sunview Place. You know, you could be in charge of my house and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. This is like the guys, all of the guys' belongings. He would have had perhaps, you know, a farm or he would have had some, some factory, if you will, where they were making things. I mean, it would have been a whole enterprise and a lot of people. It would have been like a small company. He made him overseer of his house and all that he had, he put under his authority. Thus, he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he did not know what he had. He did not even know what he had. He had so much stuff except for the bread which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance and you know what happened. 
came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. He was there every day, and the Potiphar was off running the army of Egypt. And she said, lie with me. Let's sleep together. And he refused, and he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. He has so much stuff, and he's entrusted it to me, and he trusts me so much, he doesn't even know what's here, and he's committed all that he has to my hand. That's what a steward was. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This is the clearest example in Scripture of what a steward was. And the Apostle Paul said, I am a steward of what God has given to me. Well, what had God given to him? He gave him, what the little phrase here, the mysteries of Christ. Now, that's one of those phrases you go, what in the world? The mysteries of Christ are really easily defined right here in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation or the responsibility, like the stewardship, the realm of authority of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written, by which when you read you will understand my knowledge in the mystery, he still hasn't defined it, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his apostles and prophets. A mystery is a word that God used to refer to new truth that is given in the New Testament era. It's not a mystery like, hmm, i got to be really smart to figure this out. Nobody would ever figure out the things that God calls mysteries because they were his truth that he kept locked up. He didn't choose to tell Moses all of the details about Jesus. He didn't choose to tell Isaiah all of the truth about the things yet future that he told to John the Apostle. So there were truths that he kept locked up, and as the, uh, the apostolic era unfolded, God opened up his truth and he gave it to these various men, including the Apostle Paul. And if you remember the quote that I read earlier, the Apostle Paul wrote more of the New Testament than anybody except Luke. And so God spoke to Paul and gave him the truth that has been now recorded into the Scripture, and the Apostle Paul treated that the way that Joseph treated everything that was under his authority. He said, God has put me in authority over this or he's given me the responsibility of using it the way he wants it used. Now here is the point as we come back to this issue of pride. Was Paul something special before God got a hold of him? No. In fact, if you wanted to put it this way, you could say not only was he not special, he was a terrible sinner, an opposer of God's work on earth. And so God saved him. And he entered into this relationship with God where he was an underrower. He said, God, I, I'm here. What do you want me to do? In fact, if you read Acts chapter 9, that's what he says. He says, Lord, who are you and what do you want me to do? And as, time, and as time went through, God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be my apostle to go to the Gentiles in particular. 
And, of course, Paul didn't know it at the time, but as time went on, God revealed truth to him. And he had a tremendous knowledge of the Old Testament because he was a Pharisee and a student of the Word before he was saved. And he took all of that knowledge and all of this truth that God gave him and wrote books like Romans. Tremendous, tremendous thing. Should Paul have broken his arm patting himself on the back? Where did he get the truth that he gave to everybody? God. Did he figure it out himself? No, God gave it to him. And so the apostle Paul said, look guys, you're over here trying to pump up this guy and say he's something special or this guy's something special. We follow this one, we follow that one. He said, look, we're all just God's servants. God gives us this stuff and we handle it for him. There's no reason to pump anybody up and make anybody else more special. The Corinthian believers were, were so full of pride, they thought all of these things we've done ourselves. He says here, consider us, here's the way I think of myself, I'm a servant and I'm a steward, and here's what a steward is supposed to be, verse two. He's supposed to be faithful. He's supposed to be faithful. Here's an example, a good example of the Apostle Paul's faithfulness. This is uh, it's his self-evaluation with the elders of Ephesus. He was getting ready to leave them, and he says this. When the elders had come, he said, You know that from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I lived among you, serving the Lord with humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Do you get that? In every place he went, the Holy Spirit spoke through somebody in the church, and they all said, chains and tribulations are awaiting you. Every place he went, that's what people said. We have a couple of records of that in the book of Acts, and even the, the Christians sometimes said, don't go, Paul, don't go. But none of these things moves me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. That's the attitude of an under-rower. So that I may finish my race with joy. All that matters is that I row until the captain says stop. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, you will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God deposited with Paul his precious word and the mandate to go and share it with everybody around. And what did the Apostle Paul say right here that we just read? He said, I am free of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul was faithful to proclaim all of God's truth. He didn't hold back on any of it. 
You know, there's some parts of the Bible I could walk right into the most liberal places in the world and preach that truth, and they'd go, man, that is beautiful stuff. A lot of the stuff in the Sermon on the Mount is well-received and well-thought-of by those who really don't like a lot of other parts of the Bible. But I could go into those same places and preach some other parts of the Bible, and they go, you get out of here. And the Apostle Paul knew that. When he went into a place that was Jewish and he stood up and said, Jesus Christ is the Messiah and you need to believe in him, he knew they were not going to like that. And when he went on to explain why they should not be following the Old Testament law and, and, and laid all of this out, he knew they were not going to like it. What did he do? He preached it anyway. I have, not, I, I have not failed, I have not shunned to tell you the whole truth of God. He was faithful to give that truth to all people. He didn't go to some people and speak one thing, other people another thing. He gave that truth to all people. And according to this self-evaluation here, he was even faithful through difficulty. None of these things moves me. None of these things moves me. On the ship that he took to Rome, at the end, you know, the, his last journey, and he, he's imprisoned, eventually loses his life for the Lord, the Lord told them ahead of time what, that there was going to be some problems, that the ship was going to have this, and he tried to counsel the captain of the ship and say, look, do this and don't do that, and they wouldn't listen to him, and he's thinking, you know, the Lord already told me what's going to happen, but he kept going anyway. John MacArthur summarized it this way, God supplies his word, his spirit, his gifts, and his power all the minister can supply is his faithfulness. And that word minister is small m, not like professional, like all of us. And when God does something through his word and through his spirit and through his gifts and through his power, how much personal pride should we take in the result? None. Blessing? Yes. Share those blessings like we've shared some today and say, praise the Lord and clap. Yeah! Joy? Yeah! Motivation to serve more? Yeah! Pride? No! It's not through us, it is through God, through His Holy Spirit. And so if, if you would gain God's approval at that great graduation that's coming in the future, there's got to be this mentality that Paul had, which is, I'm a servant. I'm here to do God's will. He saved my life. You know, we, we, we've seen this, this depicted in movies or, or books, you know, the, the idea at least that somebody literally saved a person from dying and that person says, well, I have to serve you forever because you've saved my life. I wonder where they got that idea from. Maybe they read the Bible, I don't know. But humanly speaking, we look at that and say, you know, that's kind of reasonable. You saved the guy's life, you really ought to. How can you pay him for your life? If it's reasonable on a physical level, it's more reasonable on a spiritual level. Jesus Christ went to the cross and suffered immeasurably for us, and God has received that payment for our sin, and so we owe him. And the Apostle Paul said, I'm his servant, and I'm also a, a, his trusted manager. It's his stuff, he's put it with me, and I'm going to use it the way he wants me to use it. God's approval, God's approval requires a right understanding of the self. 
God's approval, secondly, requires a right understanding of human bias. Look at verse 3 and 4. With me, now the Apostle Paul was, was kind of sledding uphill here because these people were not thinking that much of him. And so he says, with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court or human group of people. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. Now that word justified is used in a couple of ways in the New Testament. One is about salvation. To be justified is to be made righteous by the blood of Christ. That is not what he's talking about here. He's already a Christian. He's talking about the justification among people. I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. God's approval requires a right understanding of human bias when it comes to evaluation. The word judge there means to evaluate or to analyze. And the truth that Paul is speaking to us is this. Human evaluation is based on observable preferences, comparison, and peer pressure. You may have to think about that for a while, but I think it's pretty obvious Here's an episode from the life of Paul that just illustrates this so powerfully. Paul and Barnabas going about sharing the gospel. In Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting. He was a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed said, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. Man, they were lit on fire. And if you go back into their history, there's there's a whole mythology about the gods coming and being rejected on a previous time. And so they were really intent on, if this was the gods, they've got to receive them. But, But they saw this miracle and said, said, wow, the gods have come. And, they, and, and Paul said, I'm skipped part of it here for time, but Paul said, men, why are you doing these things? We're also men with the same nature as you, and we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, from your mythologies, to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all things that were in them. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. The priest of the local temple went to get some animals and was literally bringing them to say, let's make a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And they're going, don't do that. Wow. Talk about elevation. Couldn't you have ridden that wave and written the book and gone on the speaking tour? And he's saying, don't do it, don't do it. We're just men. Now that's verse 18. Do you know what it says in verse 19? Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came to to Lystra and said, and they persuaded the multitudes, so they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Do you get that? One minute they're ready to worship and literally, some people come into town going, these guys are terrible and bad-mouthing him. So they take him out to him and stone him until they thought he was dead. What's my point? We're, we're going to get back to that. Let me back up right there. 
human, oh no, I've got to go back more, come on. Oh, I've lost my point. One more. Come on. There it is. No. I wish I could blame this on Leanna. There it is. Human evaluation is based on observable preference, comparison, and peer pressure. See, they did a miracle, and people went, wow, they're gods, let's sacrifice to them. Some people came along and pressed on that crowd and said, they're bums, let's stone them. That's how the tide of human opinion changes. And it goes with your preference and in comparison one person to another and based on the majority. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 4, it's a very small thing for me that I should be judged by you. He said, I know this. And I know the fact that you people are elevating this guy and this guy and some of you are elevating me, but some of you are tearing me down. He said, that is, that is a, a very small thing. And human evaluation is even more biased when it's personal. Look at verse three and verse four. Uh, end of verse three. I don't even judge myself. Because the Apostle Paul said, I know how, how wicked self-evaluation can be. I know nothing against myself. He said, my conscience is clear. He used that phrase several times. I know nothing against myself, yet that's not what makes me something. But he who judges me is the Lord. Why is human evaluation so dangerous, especially when it's personal? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Once we get saved, Christ comes in, our life and our thinking and our behavior becomes more like Christ day by day by day, but our flesh is still there and it still calls us towards sin and we have to work to know the difference between good and bad even in our own conscience. The heart is desperately wicked. This familiar verse, I think, alludes to the same idea. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that infer? It infers that we know some things. I know I did this wrong. And so we go and say, God, I, I lied yesterday and it was wrong. But we have forgotten these other five things because our own self-evaluation isn't that good. When I was 21, I thought I was pretty mature. The year before, I had been put in charge of a music group that traveled all over the West Coast. They gave me five people, a van, a credit card, an itinerary, and said, go out and go to all these churches and camps. And I thought, yeah, I am the leader of the group here, buddy. We had an awesome time. And, and then school came, and, and that next year, uh, a year after that, uh, Sue and I got engaged, got married, and I was given the job of managing and rehabilitating a food service area for the students at the college, and uh, boy, I thought I was mature. And you know what? I was wrong. And you know how I know? I could tell you stories all day about that. As far as I could see, I was pretty mature. 
So what's the problem? I just couldn't see that far. And so we all look at ourselves and go, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Because we use our own vision. And the Apostle Paul said, I don't know of anything against myself, but that's not the standard. He said, the one who must judge me is God. And that's why God, God's approval requires a right understanding of God's vision. Look at verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the things of darkness and reveal the, thing, the hidden counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. God's approval requires a right understanding of God's vision. Does God just look at our busyness? You know, yesterday at church, there was a lot of busyness. Boy, you know, the, there was busyness at the yard sale from Thursday. <laughs> and, and I think Friday night, there were literally some people who stayed at the church all night to make sure nobody stole all of our valuable stuff. <laughs> wow, what a fool's errand is that? <laughs> Sorry, Jim. <laughs> Fred. <laughs> Would have been better for you guys just to write a check, go home, go to bed, wouldn't it? <laughs> but you see, it wouldn't have been better for them to write a check, go home, because it's not about busyness. It's about what we're doing when we're busy and what's in our heart when we're busy. God, God's not going to look down and go, oh my, look, look, those people came to church every time the doors were open. They're wonderful, wonderful people. Now, you know I'm not against church attendance. <laughs> Neither am I against the putting money in the offering or serving or any of those things. But is it about busyness? No, the Apostle Paul said what it's going to be about is the hidden things of darkness, the stuff that cannot be seen and, and, and the counsels of the heart. Does God look at our popularity It's not hard sometimes to gather a crowd. Is that going to be God's standard of judgment? Oh, we had so many kids here. We had so many women there. We had this, we had that, we had the other. Is that going to be God's standard of judgment? No. No. Does God look at just at our actions? What's visible on the outside? That's the big point here. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, it's not going to be just the actions. Look at this verse from Philippians. Some people preach Christ from envy and strife and some from goodwill. Can you imagine the idea that a preacher is going to get up and his whole motive is envy and strife? In other words, he's trying to make himself something. He's trying to be better than somebody else. That's awful. And yet if God was just to judge by the outward actions, that person would be rewarded. But of course, that won't happen. Does God just listen to our words? No. God looks at our whole person, including, including our busyness, including our actions, including our words, including the unseen thoughts and motives. That's what this familiar verse tells us. The Lord does not look like, does not see, does not have a vision like man sees. 
Man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. And, and this proverb is very similar. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord, the Lord weighs the hearts. And so the Apostle Paul says, what really matters is God's judgment. Look, go back to verse 4b, the, the second part of these, verse 4. He who judges me is the Lord. At the end of verse 5, then each one's praise will come from God. Now how does God judge us? God judges us in several ways. He judges us through his word. The apostle Paul said, I don't judge myself, but he didn't say, I never take God's word and apply it to my life and and evaluate myself by God's word. When Matthew 7 says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. Great, huh? Memorize that. What he's saying is, don't use your own personal standard, use this standard. I'm willing to be judged by this standard. And you should be too. And your self-judgment should be from God because someday in heaven, this will be the standard of judgment then. God judges us through his word. Secondly, God judges us through the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 8, he says, the Holy Spirit will convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment In other words, part of the ministry is the Holy Spirit poking you in your conscience going, that ain't right. You need to change that. Don't go there. Don't do that. Do this. That's the Holy Spirit. And God judges us, and we should listen to that judgment. People may come around and go, I don't like what you're doing. The question needs to be, is God saying, I don't like what you're doing? God judges us through our brothers. Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins, go and talk to him. And we need to be listening for that judgment that comes from God through brothers and sisters in Christ. Lastly, God will judge us personally. We will stand before Christ and receive the things done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And it is a judgment of evaluation and, and, and recognition. It is not a punishment judgment, but it will be an evaluation of how did you do you know, when you, when you go to college or, or to a tech school or wherever you might go to get some training, they have a, a curriculum laid out. And at the end of that curriculum, they look at your record and say, let's see, how did you do? Do you deserve that piece of paper that says you're a graduate? What were your grades? How did, you know, this, this, this. And at the end of it, they go, yep, you're a graduate. And for some, they go, yep, you're a really good graduate. And that's really very similar of what God is going to do for us in heaven. He's going to evaluate our works and say, you did good this far, you did good this far, you did good this far. And the Apostle Paul said, that's the judgment that matters. People may pump you up, they may pat you on the back. He said, that is not what matters. People may tear you down, they may criticize you. He said, that is not what matters. What matters is the judgment of God. It's very tempting in this life to orient our actions so that we can gain the approval and applause of the people around us. For those of you that are high school graduates, people around you are going to press you to have plans. I asked you today, what's your plan in the future? And, and I hope you didn't feel any pressure toward that. It's just a, a, a question of, of inquiry. Who knows how God will lead in your life? But I know what matters. What matters is that day by day, by year by year, by 
college graduation or whatever you do, that you can say, the Lord is going to be my judge and he's going to be happy with what I've done. In some circles, you'll, you know, young people are pressed toward marriage. It doesn't matter what somebody says to you about getting married. What matters is, are you living to please God? Some people will look at the skills and abilities that you have and declare, you should not waste your life on this or this or this. You should do that. doesn't matter what they think. What matters is, what does God think? For those of us who are younger and, and older, there are many pressures to achieve and to perform. But the opinion that matters in the end is God's. I had a great illustration of these principles this week from uh, a missionary who we'll get to see, Lord willing, uh, I think the beginning of next year, Sharon Rahilly, just a wonderful servant of God out in Togo. She's a, she's got, she has more degrees than a thermometer, literally. She's teaching Togolese people to be nurses for the new hospital and uh, leading that whole charge. What a, what a tremendous, and she does other things as well, of course. But they're coming up to a graduation time and there was some contention. There's a lot of factors in this. She said, many of you prayed about the meeting last Saturday with the nurses, nursing students, and some of the members of our hospital board. Thank you for your prayers. To be very honest, it was a very difficult morning. Not easy to hear what others think should have been done differently or better. Not easy to realize the lack of confidence in explanations that have been given numerous times. Talk about being close to tears following a meeting, parentheses, well, in tears at times, parentheses. Yet I am reminded often that I am here in obedience to God. And there is absolute peace that I am doing exactly what he wants me to do. That's the question you need to be able to answer in your life. If you're a high school graduate, or a young person, or an old person, or one in between, is God happy with my life? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, you folks don't think much of me, I don't care. And that was not arrogant, he said, because God's standard is so much higher and I'm doing my best to live up to that. And someday he'll give me the final verdict. May that be our goal as well. Father, oh boy, it's so easy to be pressed to please people this way and that way. We're swayed by their opinions of us. Father, help us to live to please you. And as we do it, will you give us the encouragement we need, the blessing we need, the confidence that we need so that someday in heaven we can look you in the face and you will say, well done, good and faithful steward. I pray in Christ's name, amen.